Thank you, Evan, for leading us in that call to worship, and Sherry and the team for leading us in our singing this morning. I'm excited about what God has for us during this season, and uh, really anticipating Him meeting us as we wait on Him. I want to welcome those of you who are worshiping with us online as well, and I ask that you would uh, hopefully engage in what we're doing, that you wouldn't just be observing, that you'd really enter into this time of waiting with us as well. Who here enjoys waiting? Yeah, not many of us. Whether it's a line of cars at a traffic signal, a row of people in the grocery store checkout line, or the twisting and turning mob of people at a, par- at a popular amusement park ride, we have little patience for waiting. While frustrating, the kind of waiting I just mentioned is a minor annoyance compared to the important things in our lives that we're ma- waiting on God to make right. Long-term relationship heartaches, chronic pain or illness, financial pressures and job stresses that never seem to go away, unfulfilled hopes, dreams, and longings, and loved ones we've diligently prayed for for years who don't know Jesus. Waiting takes up a significant portion of our lives. So it's not surprising that from cover to cover, the Bible unfolds the story of God's people waiting. In Genesis, we're introduced to 75-year-old Abraham and his 65-year-old wife Sarah who waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise that he would give them a son. Later, due to a famine in the land where Abraham and his descendants settle, God's people migrated south to Egypt where God supplied them with grain, gave them land to farm and sheep to herd. For a time, God's people thrived, but their sojourn in Egypt resulted in slavery to Pharaoh. And so for 400 years, the Israelites cried out to God in their misery, and they waited and waited for God to act. Finally, God heard their cry and sent Moses to deliver them. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt from Pharaoh's iron grip to God's promised land in Canaan, but due to their sin, God's people walked and walked and walked, and a journey that should have taken 11 days took them 40 years. Despite the warnings of God's prophets and their calls to remain true to him, Israel's time in the promised land was anything but the hoped-for utopia. During the time of the judges, which lasted over four centuries, Israel was caught in an endless cycle of occupation and oppression by their neighbors, and then God hearing their cries and temporarily delivering them, only to watch them fall back into sin and oppression. Eventually, as they waited for deliverance, the people demanded that God give them a king so they could be like all the other nations. In response to their insistence, God gave his people a king, but he warned them through his prophet Samuel that having a king would lead to undesirable consequences. After King Saul's disastrous reign, David came to the throne. God blessed David's leadership and promised he would always have a descendant on the throne, which would eventually culminate in the arrival of the Messiah. David led well for a time, and Israel tasted success. But in his humanity, David fell, and Israel's wait for God's promised Messiah began in earnest. The kings after David were a mixed bag, 
A few were good, but most were bad. And the intensity of the Israelites' wait for their king grew stronger. 700 years before Jesus' arrival, the prophet Isaiah prophesied extensively about the coming Messiah. And after Isaiah, other prophets who were sent by God prophesied. But things only got worse. And after the prophet Malachi, there was 400 years of silence. So in all, over 300 years had lapsed from the time God first made himself known to Abraham and still God's people waited. And our wait continues. Since Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem as a baby and his subsequent life, death, and resurrection, Jesus' followers await his return when he has promised everything will be made right and all will be reconciled to him. The word Advent means coming. And for the church, the season of Advent consists of three comings. First, we remember and celebrate Jesus coming as a baby. Emmanuel, God with us, came to earth so that our relationship with God might be restored. Next, we await Jesus' second coming, when the Bible promises Jesus will return and make all things new. And finally, as we celebrate Jesus' birth and await his second coming, we wait for Jesus to enter the places in our lives where we desperately need his healing and restoration. The words of the popular Christmas hymn poignantly capture our waiting, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. I want to invite you to follow along as I read the first part of the Christmas story, kind of the prelude, if you will, to Jesus' birth from Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 25, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this passage through this lens, but I want you as I read, I encourage you to listen to all the times, all the, all the places where waiting occurs. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I have myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of the God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they both were very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angels, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So how many instances of waiting did you come up with that were either specifically mentioned or were alluded to? The theme of waiting is a thread that runs through these verses. Luke, the author, begins by explaining, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. The words have been fulfilled indicate that the events surrounding Jesus' birth had been prophesied and faithful Jews were awaiting their fulfillment. And Luke essentially begins his gospel by declaring, this is it, the fulfillment of all that you've been waiting for. In verse 5, we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the couple soon to become the parents of John the Baptist and relatives of Jesus' mother, Mary. We're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been waiting for a child, but Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One year when Zechariah, a priest, was chosen by the drawing of lots to go into the temple to burn incense, an angel appeared to him. The angel said, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear a son. Now, understandably, and I think I would have done the same thing, I'm sure many of you would as well, Zechariah was stunned, and when in his unbelief he questioned the angel's word, he was told he'd be unable to speak until the baby was born. So not only were the elderly couple waiting in anticipation of John's birth, they also awaited the return of Zechariah's voice. Meanwhile, verse 21 says, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Everyone mentioned in this account was waiting. They were all waiting. In the Bible, waiting is often accompanied by silence. And so as I was reading this passage again this morning, even it just struck me how interesting that as Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting, Zechariah had to be silent. The Bible often shows us waiting accompanied by silence, yet our tendency is to fill the space while we wait with noise. Noise and activity help us avoid having to think. They fill the empty space with something, anything. Some of us, and I'm not trying to be critical here, just saying what I know, some of us even sleep with the radio TV on in the background to fill the silence. 
The season of Advent for the church, as Evan talked about, coincides with our culture's celebration of the Christmas season. Isn't it ironic that our season of waiting for Jesus to come is the loudest and busiest season of the year? Actually, the more I thought about that, I don't think it's ironic at all. It's not a coincidence. It's perfectly logical. We're uncomfortable with with waiting. So rather than wait in silence, we do all we can to fill the void by substituting activity for waiting. So Advent, the season of waiting for Jesus to come, has devolved into the most hectic season of the year. Now, I'm not going to get on my soapbox and say you shouldn't buy Christmas presents or go to Christmas parties or decorate your home or any of that. Those are fun things. But I think it's interesting that the season of waiting, when we're called to wait for Jesus to come into the hard places of our lives, is a season filled with busyness and noise and hectic activity. During the season of Advent, our staff's hope is that we can create windows of time each Sunday morning for us to wait and embrace silence. And that, and and understandably this is really ambitious, we hope that these small moments of waiting in silence that we create here can somehow permeate the busyness of our lives during the week between Sundays. I just want to pause here. I understand that's really ambitious. Because it's easy to come in on a Sunday morning, we participate in the service, and then we go back to the rest of our lives. But my hope really is, for your benefit, that the times of silence and space and kind of pulling back that we create here become times that you experience throughout the week during this season of Advent. In a few moments, we're going to provide a brief time of silence for us to focus on what we're waiting for and to invite Jesus to come into our lives in a fresh way. As I noted earlier, Luke begins his gospel by stating that many have attempted to give an account of the things that have been fulfilled by Jesus' birth and life. Luke's alluding to the many Old Testament prophecies that were made about Jesus century prior to his birth. Matthew's gospel introduces John the Baptist by referring to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And I'd like to read these words for you. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those words later were attributed to the foretelling of the coming of John the Baptist. And I believe that those scriptures, as I read through those verses this week, 
as Evan and I talked about what we wanted to try to see God do in this service. I believe that those verses provide a natural platform for us to consider some important questions on this first Sunday of Advent. In the words of the prophet, the hard service of God's people has been completed, their sin has been paid for. Now before I help us try to apply this to our lives, I want to give a little context for Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has 66 66 chapters. The first 39 really speak to the difficult place that God's people found themselves in. And then those words that I read to you in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, are really kind of pivot point for the book of Isaiah. Because then what comes after that begins to talk about the prophecies, the hope, the goodness that God has for his people. And so these verses are really important verses in the context of Scripture. It says, The hard service of God's people has been completed. Their sin has been paid for. And so my question that I want us to focus on this morning is, what's hard in your life? Where do you feel defeated or where are you lacking hope? What's hard in your life at this point? I'm not just asking that question to kind of stir up some angst for you so that you leave today saying, well, that was really good. Uh, Now I'm frustrated. Our hope is that as we're able to identify the hard places in our lives, we ask God, we invite him to come into that, to bring his restoration and healing. And so when I ask that question, what's the hard place in your life? Maybe the hardest, because some of you might say, well, I've got like 10 things. Well, ask the Holy Spirit to say, to identify for you, what's the hardest spot in your life? And I'd like to invite you uh, in a moment of silence just to reflect on that question and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. What's the place, the hard place in your life this morning? Where do you feel defeated or where are you lacking in hope? I invite you to bow your heads, to stare into space, whatever it is that helps you focus, and really allow the Holy Spirit to speak an answer to that question to your heart.
Okay, you can come back. That was about a minute and a half. I thought about telling you it was going to be a minute and a half. I thought if somebody told me that, I was sitting where you're sitting, I'd be looking at my watch. So I just said, we'll be silent. It's hard for us to be quiet. It's hard for us to wait in silence. And yet those are important times for the Holy Spirit to be able to speak to our heart. Waiting is a shared human experience. And sometimes I believe the waiting of others taps into our own season of waiting. I'm going to read two testimonies for you of people from McBick. Anonymous testimonies of people who wait with hope for God to bring his restoration and healing. From someone diagnosed with an incurable disease. As the first symptoms appear, the darkness descends subtly, like lengthening shadows at the end of the day. Soon, more symptoms developed, more systems malfunction. The night is upon us. Then, a ray of light, a glimmer of hopes appears, and at last we have some clarity, a diagnosis. Treatment brings relief, for now, though a cure is elusive, a dream for some distant future. How long will treatment remain effective? How does this alter our future together? We wait, and in the waiting we pray like the psalmists. I pray to God my life a prayer, and wait for what he'll say and do. My life is on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning. From Psalm 130. Another testimony from a couple mourning their children, turning away from God. We raised our three kids to follow Jesus from a young age. After having served Jesus faithfully into their 20s, two of them have chosen to turn away from Jesus, which has caused pain, tension, and anger. Each family gathering or special event brings a fresh reminder of lives that have been deceived by the evil one. In those times, we had expected to share joys and stories of God's blessing, but instead we walk on eggshells and keep conversations limited to daily routines. As we wait and pray for the truth of God's word to intervene, we mourn for the lost time and strained relationships within our own family. Those may not be your experience, but hopefully they help you tap into some of the hard things that you're waiting on God to bring resolution and healing to. Fortunately, Isaiah's words don't end with our difficulty and our sin. He said the voice who would come would declare, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places of plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. There's hope. There's healing. There's rebuilding and restoration. And so the question I'd like us to sit with now for a bit is, what might God want to do in your life during this season of difficulty? And what does it look like for you to pray with hope in this situation? Our natural response to difficulty, to pain, to waiting is impatience. We kick and we we squirm and we think, man, if I just work harder, maybe I can do something about this. And at times, if we're honest, we'd say, you know, I know my activity probably isn't helping, but at least it feels like I'm doing something, right? How many of you have been there? I know that what I'm doing probably isn't helping, but just sitting there doing nothing 
feels futile. At least I feel like I'm doing something. What is it that God might want to do in you during this season as you wait? And what does it look like for you to pray with hope in this situation? I'd like you to focus on that and just allow God to speak to you for a couple of moments, um, just so you don't wonder what's happening. I'm going to go down. Our worship team will come up in a few moments. They'll lead us into a time of worship and singing. But I encourage you to focus on that. What does God want to do in me during this season as I wait? And what does it look like for me to wait with hope?